We invite the children here, kindergarten to first grade, if they wish to be dismissed to children's church. Where our kids are going to children's church, I invite you to open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Deuteronomy chapter 9, it's on page 180 in the Pew Bible. This is your first Sunday here. Welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, we are studying through the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament and have been since about September. So just kind of slowly making our way through this. Uh, one of the most um, foundational books of the Old Testament and of the scriptures. Here we are in chapter 9. This morning we're studying verses 1 to 6. Hear, O Israel. You are now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you, with large cities that have walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall, Anakites. You have heard about them. You know about them and have heard it said, Who can stand up against the Anakites? But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you, and you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly as the Lord has promised you. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going in to take possession of their land. But on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. For you are a stiff Necked people. It is not because of our righteousness. God is about to bring Israel into the promised land, and He's reminding them here in Deuteronomy 9 that as the Israelites are camped on the edge of the Jordan River, about to go in and dispossess the land of Canaan and to take it over for themselves at God's command, God's reminding them it's not because of your righteousness. It's for other reasons. It's not that you are somehow a superior nation that's dispossessing another nation. This is really, uh, I think, something that we humans struggle with, taking credit for things that we didn't do, Uh, wanting to take credit for everything that goes well, even though we didn't cause it. You know, this is sort of a standard uh, practice in politics. Uh, You know, people in politics, presidents, governors, when things are going well, they say, oh, yeah, those are my policies. Yeah, that's right. I'm the one who... Uh, and it's causing this to happen. And when things are not going well, of course, it's the other party's fault is how it works. Uh, you know, you even see this with little kids, like little two-year-olds, three-year-olds. Uh, you know, they, they learn some new skill or they get some piece of information. And you say, who taught you that? And the little three-year-old will say, oh, I just know it. You know, I, something I have. I, I, I figured out how to tie my shoe on my own. Yeah, right. But that's our nature to want to take credit for things. But here in Deuteronomy 9, 
God wants to completely disabuse Israel of this fantasy that somehow it's their righteousness that has earned the blessings that they're about to receive. In fact, this, this idea uh, that it's not Israel's inherent merit uh, began back in chapter 7. If you look back at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, we studied this passage a few weeks ago. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, where he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be His people, His treasured possession. Now, why did God do that? The Lord did not set His affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. So Israel was not chosen by God in the Old Testament because they were greater or better. It's not like you know when kids on the uh, you know, playground are picking teams and they, they pick the biggest, strongest kid to be on the team first. That's the kid who gets first picked. It's not like that. It's not like God was picking Israel because they were a standout, head and shoulders above the other nations. No, that's not why. It's not you. Trust me, Israel. It's not you. Uh, or look at chapter 8, verse 17. Same ideas, slightly different issue, but we studied this two weeks ago. He said, You may say to yourself, My power and the strength of my own hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. So Israel, when you come into the promised land and God gives you great prosperity, don't take credit. It's God is blessing you. It's not your own hands, not your own intelligence and wisdom. And so that theme emerges again here in chapter 9. Israel, you're about to go into the promised land. God is going to drive these nations out before you. But remember, it's not because of your righteousness. So we have here in chapter 9, verses 1 to 3, this promise again that that God is going to supernaturally overcome people who inhabit a certain area. This is not some sort of general call to take over people by force. It's a promise that God's going to supernaturally drive these people out. And that Israel is going to kind of follow after him. Uh, we've said before that Israel really didn't wage holy war in the Old Testament. It was more of a holy mop-up operation. God is the one who's going to do this miracle. He's going to make the walls of Jericho fall down. You're just going to kind of follow along after God in, in his wake. And so God is going to do it. It's not you, Israel. But there's still a problem, you see. Because Israel could say, oh yeah, God did it. God accomplished this. God dispossessed these nations. But you know, we deserved it. I mean, the reason he did this was for us. It's because we're the kind of people who deserve to have this land. So yeah, God did the miracle, but it was our righteousness that merited the miracle. And so in order to completely wipe out any such fantasy, we have in chapter 9, verses 4 to 6, God saying three times, it's not your righteousness. Verse 4, after the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. Verse 5, it is not because of your righteousness or integrity that you're going in to take possession of the land. Verse 6, understand then that it is not because of your righteousness. So, you know, how many times does God have to say it? Well, at least three, apparently, to drive this home to them. It's, it's not you. You taking over the land is not like getting a gold star on your spelling test because you get all the words right. That's not why you're getting the land. You, you getting the land is not like a, a bonus because you had a good job performance review. 
It's not a, a, a medal of honor for meritorious service above and beyond the call of duty. It's not a reward that you've earned. This, this is not why God's doing this. It's not your, your inherent goodness or righteousness that's obtaining these things for you. So then why was God doing this? Why was He giving them the promised land if it wasn't something Israel somehow deserved inherently because of their actions? Well, we have three answers to that question in a sense in verses 4 to 6. Because after God says it's not because of your righteousness, He gives another explanation. So in verse 4, the first reason is, He says, no, it's on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. So it's not that you're so good, Israel, it's that they're so bad. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago when we wrestled with this really thorny theological question of holy war in the Old Testament. Why would God do that? And we saw that that Israel's invasion of Cana was sort of a unique historical moment where God was executing His sovereign right to judge on a particular nation and He was using Israel as the weapon. He He was destroying the Canaanites. You know, the Canaanites by this time, we know from the Bible, we know from archaeology, uh, that child sacrifice was widespread. That, that these were, you know, this was a demonic religion, you might say. That, that uh, sexual immorality and promiscuity was actually, you know, part and parcel of the religion itself. It was a cesspool, religiously and spiritually. And so God finally said, I'm going to drain the cesspool. I'm going to clean it out. I'm done with the land of Cana. And so that's why he allowed Israel to go in there. So, you know, in the days of Noah, he brought judgment through water. In the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, he brought judgment through fire. And now he brings judgment through the sword of the Israelites. But it's still God sovereignly deciding to judge a particular people at a particular time. So it's not because of your righteousness, Israel. It's because of their wickedness. Or to put it another way, it's because of God's righteousness. It's because God is righteous and He can't look at sin forever. You know, what kind of a good, righteous God would He be if He allowed Cana and its immoralities to continue unchecked forever? You know, it's like we complain about God. God, how could you let evil happen in the world? And then we complain, God, how can you judge people? You can't have it both ways. (laughs) One is the answer to the other. God does judge sin. And so it's because He is the righteous King who cannot forever look at human debauchery and evil that finally God says, I'm giving you this land because these people, they're going one way or another. I've had enough. Then there's a second reason that we're given why Israel is going into the promised land. It's not because of their righteousness. It's because God is fulfilling His promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, look at verse 5. It is on account of the wickedness of these nations, verse 5, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to, here we go, accomplish what He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Ah, so God is fulfilling a promise to your forefathers, the patriarchs. Again, it's about God's righteousness, not your righteousness. God is righteous in that He keeps His promises. It's one of the things I love about God. He never breaks His promise. If He says He'll do it, He'll do it. He is the only one I've ever found in this world who is faithful and true to always keep His Word, to always do what He says. And so God's like, I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to make you into a nation and bring you here, and so I'm going to do it. So I'm going to do it. I'm faithful to that promise. 
fact, we saw that back in chapter 7. You know that verse we just read a few minutes ago? Look at chapter 7 again. Verse 6. Remember we just read this. The Lord your God has chosen you. He chose Israel out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be His people, His treasured possession. Why? Well, verse 7, The Lord did not set His affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all people. So why did He do it? Well, verse 8, It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath He swore to your forefathers that He brought you out, of hand, uh, brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. So it was because of His promise to Abraham so it's God's righteousness. God's keeping His promises to these people. Now, now you can kind of trace this back. This is sort of an interesting sort of thought experiment. But you could go back a little bit and say, okay, so God made that promise to Abraham. What, was it because of Abraham's righteousness that God made the promise to save a people someday? Actually, no, it wasn't. Actually, God's promise to Abraham was really the fulfillment of another promise made earlier. Way back in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve first sinned, and, and at that moment, you know, God could have destroyed them completely, but instead He made a promise. He said to Eve, there's going to be an offspring, there's going to be a line of faith proceeding from you, and, and you're going to have a descendant who's going to crush the head of that wily serpent. And, and so the promise of redemption began right there in the Garden of Eden. And now, now, we can then further ask the question, why did God promise that to Eve? Was it because of her righteousness? No. So why did God promise it to Eve? Because He's merciful. Because He's good. He did it for His own glory. You know, if, again, if God had decided to end the human history right there at the Garden of Eden, He would have been more than justified in doing so. I've often said I think one of the most amazing chapters in the Bible is Genesis chapter 4. Simply by the fact that there is a Genesis chapter 4. That the story didn't end at Genesis chapter 3 with the rebellion in the garden, but that God mercifully put a plan in place for a Redeemer. And so, all of God's promises have arisen from grace, not from human merits. None of it is anything we've earned. God promised Eve. He promised Abraham. He's fulfilling His promises. He promised Israel, and then someday He fulfills His promise with Jesus, the Messiah of Israel. And so God's promises are always kept true. And even our own lives. You know, we look at our lives as Christians. He's chosen us, just like He chose Israel. This is that you know, challenging topic of predestination that kind of gives us all fits and headaches. But you know, predestination in the Bible is not meant to be a confusing doctrine. It's meant to be a comforting doctrine. To know that, that the reason I'm ultimately a Christian is because God chose to have mercy on me. That, that my standing as a Christian is not based upon my ability to keep a... You know, to keep the law faithfully. It's not like God picked me because He thought I could do a good job. He just did it mercifully. So it's really a comfort to know that, that God is His hand underneath me and that He's the one who, who chooses and saves. It's an amazing thing. Um, you know, predestination, some of the people say, oh, it's not really fair. Yeah, you're right, it's not fair. Because fair would be if God didn't save anybody. That's fair. That's get what you deserve. Instead, God has had mercy. I love how John Calvin put it. He said that uh, when we come to the door of salvation and hear the gospel, we see a sign over the door that says, whoever will may enter. And it's true. Whoever will may enter. You can come to Christ. There's nothing stopping you right now but your own, your own choice. But then we walk through that door 
We come to Christ and we turn around and we look on the other side of it and above the door it says, chosen from the foundation of the world. And we see God's hand somehow mysteriously married with our, our choice and our freedom. It's an, it's an amazing miracle. And so here again in Deuteronomy we're reminded that it's not because of Israel's righteousness. No, 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 no. It's because of their wickedness. It's because God is keeping His merciful promises to choose a people and to choose a land. And then finally in verse 6, if there's still any question in people's minds, in Israel's minds or in our minds, that it's not because of our righteousness. Verse 6 is sort of the, uh, the nail in the coffin to that fantasy. He says in verse 6, Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. I'll tell you why it's not your righteousness, Israel. Because you don't have any. You're, you're not righteous. You're very stiff-necked. I love that phrase, stiff-necked. What a wonderful word picture that is. You know, it, it comes from the, uh, the agricultural days when people try to put a yoke on top of a donkey or on top of a, an ox or some other draft animal, and the, the animal would resist it. And so it would stiffen his neck. You know, I mean, try to put a yoke on a huge oxen that's, that's resisting like that. So to be stiff-necked is, a, is sort of a word picture for being resistant to saying no, to being hostile, to, to kind of pushing back and saying, no, 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 I'm not going to take that. No. It's a very stubborn refusal. That's the idea behind stiff-neckedness. Uh, I, I, you know, that, I, I was just enjoying that image in my mind, just thinking about being stiff-necked. You know, one of the pictures I had in my mind was, um, you know, a guy goes out on a date with a girl at the end of the day, and he's like, you know, this date went pretty good. I, I, you know, I think I'm going to go for it. I think I'm going to try to get a kiss here. So, you know, he leans in to get a kiss, and unfortunately the man has grossly miscalculated the woman's affections. He's grossly misinterpreted how good the date went. And, and she stiffens up, you know, and leans back. No, no, this is... No, 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 no. It's not, you know, it's, it's, tough, it's tough to kiss a woman who doesn't want to be kissed, you know. The hands come up and the, the body stiffens. No, it's a refusal. Or, or, you know, another maybe image of stiff-neckedness. I was thinking of, um, you know, like a little 18-month-old toddler. I, I have four children. I love them to death. And I thank God every day they're not 18 months old anymore. Because um, 18 months old need to be exercised. You know, they're, uh, they're evil little creatures. And they just, they, their whole being says, no, no. You know, they, they're stiff-necked. They resist. Nothing is more irritating to me than trying to put an 18-month-old in a car seat. They, 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 go, they literally go rigor mortis. They go stiff. And so, like, it's like a right triangle. There's the car seat, and their body is the hypotenuse. And you're trying to get them into the car seat. You know, you're pushing on their hips. Like, this is a little kid. And you finally get them in, and you get one strap over the arm, and then they pop out again. And, it's that stiff-necked stiff little 18-month-old who with their whole body is saying, no, I will not go in the car seat. So God is saying, Israel, you're stiff-necked. This is how, this is how you've responded to me ever since I rescued you. You're stiff-necked, resistant people. And then in verse 7, all the way through the end of chapter 9, Moses launches into a series of 
evidences from Israel's past to prove this charge that they have in fact been stiff-necked and have not been righteous. Lest Israel would still debate this, this fact that it's not their righteousness, Moses is like, I'm going to prove it to you. It's kind of like I thought of chapter 9, verses 1 to 6, is the prosecution's opening argument. And then verses 7 to the end of the chapter is sort of the main presentation of the prosecution as evidence after evidence is brought forward to prove the assertion that it's not your righteousness. And so what Moses does is he brings up five incidences from Israel's history, recent history, that show just how hostile and stiff-necked and resistant they've been. And I'm not going to go into depth in all of these five, but let me just point out a few. Look at the first one there, verse 7. Remember this and never forget how you provoked the Lord your God to anger in the desert. From the day you left Egypt until the day you arrived here, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Like what? Well, here's the five instances. First of all, verse 8, at Horeb. Horeb is, is the region around Mount Sinai where they got the Ten Commandments. So whenever you hear about Horeb in the Old Testament, you've got to think Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments. So at Horeb, you aroused the Lord's wrath so that He was angry enough to destroy you. Remember that? You guys almost got wiped out in God's judgment. Just like God wiped out the Canaanites, He almost wiped you out before you even got there. What happened? Well, verse 9. Moses says, When I went up on the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord had made with you, I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I ate no bread. I drank no water. Here's Moses miraculously sustained by being in the very presence of God, receiving the Ten Commandments. Verse 10, the Lord gave me two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. It's amazing. On them were all the commands the Lord proclaimed to you on the mountain out of the fire on the day of assembly. But get this, at the end of the 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, go down from here at once. Because your people whom you brought out of Egypt, that's bad when God's talking that way about you. Your people, your people, who you brought out of Egypt, those people, they've become corrupt. They've turned away quickly from what I commanded them and have made a cast idol for themselves. So in that short time, Israel had already broken the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make an idol. And they've already rebelled. Wow, so fast. In fact, let's read the original story. It's kind of interesting. Put a bookmark here. And go back two books to, uh, three books to the book of Exodus, chapter 32. Exodus 32. So Deuteronomy 9 tells the story kind of from Moses' perspective on the mountain. Deuteronomy, or Exodus 32 tells the story from what actually happened while Moses was gone. So you kind of put these two stories together and it's, it's interesting to see it from those two perspectives. So here's Exodus 32. Here's the original story. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Aaron, by the way, who is Moses' brother and the high priest of Israel. So the high priest, it's not good, said, Forget it, I'll never do that. No. He said, Take off the gold earrings that your wives and your sons and daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings, brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, 
cast in the shape of a calf, which was a common uh, deity worshipped throughout the ancient Near East, calf idols, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. After that they sat down to eat and drink and then got up to indulge in revelry. You know, just 40 days. They've already abandoned God. They've already become stiff-necked. They've already rejected all that He's done for them. It's just... it's. Mind-boggling. I love later on in the story when Moses comes down the mountain and confronts Aaron. It's one of the classic moments. Look at verse 21. He said to Aaron, What do these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I told them, Whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, I threw it into the fire, and out came the calf. <laughs> Seriously? It's like the dog ate my Ten Commandments. You know, it's like... Really? Wow. So when your high priest, when your high priest is that complicit and self-deceived, wow, you're lost. When the guy who's supposed to mediate God's grace to you is that deep into the sin and the lies, it's over. So, going back to Deuteronomy chapter 9. This was God's reaction. Now we're back up on the mountain. So that was happening on the ground. Here's on the mountain. God says, verse 13, The Lord said to me, I've seen this people. They're stiff-necked people indeed. Let me alone so that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make you into a nation stronger and more numerous than they Moses, here's the plan. Back off. I will wipe them out. We will start over. Guess what, Moses? You get to be Abraham version 2.0. I'm going to start over. And you're it. I've done it before. I started over after Noah. I've got all the time in the world, Moses. Let's just start this whole thing over. What do you say? So Moses came down the mountain, verse 15, and turned, went down from the mountain while it was ablaze. So the mountain is still blazing with God's glory. They know God is still God. The two tablets of the covenant were in my hands. When I looked, I saw that you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made yourselves an idol, cast in the shape of a calf. You had turned aside quickly. So quickly. That's so amazing. That fast from the way the Lord your God had commanded you. So I took the two tablets, this sort of iconic Old Testament moment, He threw them out of His hands, breaking them into pieces before your eyes to symbolize the covenant promise had already been shattered. The covenant obedience is over. But there are other incidences. Verse 22, You also made the Lord angry at Tabera, at Massa, and at Kibroth Hata'ava. I'm not going to go through each of those stories, but here's your homework for this week. Get out your Bibles and see if you can find those stories. Read about them. Three more times where Israel said, No! No, no, and they became stiff-necked. And then the last one was when they finally did come to the promised land the first time. And there at the edge of the promised land, verse 23, God said, go up, take possession of the land I have given you. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You did not trust Him or obey Him. You have been rebellious against the Lord ever since I have known you. And God said, the people said, no, we're not going into the promised land. So Israel... 
from Sinai to the promised land, it's always been no, 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 no. You're stiff-necked people. It's not your righteousness, Israel. How could you ever think that? No, you read stories like this, and in some ways it's kind of hard to believe that if God were to actually do great miracles like this right in front of your eyes, wouldn't you believe it? Wouldn't you submit to it? I mean, really? If God did these miracles, they really were that obstinate and unbelieving? That's kind of tough to believe. Is it really that hard to believe? This happens all the time, everywhere, all day long. This is, this is the human heart in response to God. It's not, no God, and definitely not on your terms. If I do show any interest, it's going to be on my terms. No, no. Even though he's blessed us in so many ways, every day is a miracle. I mean, just look outside. This world is so amazing. God just did a huge miracle called creation. He put us on it. Every breath I take is a gift from him. My family, my provision, my friends. He's given me His Word. I don't have to scratch my head and wonder, is there a God and what does He think? I could... He had it written down. I mean, wow, what a gift. God has sent preachers and friends into your life to tell you about Jesus. I mean, he's there reaching out. But just like in Moses' day, just like in Jesus' day, we say, no. No, we, we don't want to believe this. Because at the, the heart of the human spirituality is a great no to God. That's what defines us spiritually as human beings. He's, no. You know? Starts out at a young age. No, I will not honor my father and mother, even though it was written in stone. I will not. Kids know how to disobey. You have to teach them to obey, not how to disobey. That's natural. You have to teach kids how to be nice. You don't have to teach them how to fight. <laughs> you have to teach them how to, be, to lie and to steal. No one had to teach me that. I knew that. These are things I had to hopefully be... You know, discipline to change. And even then, my heart is still the same. You know, it's, it, it's us saying no to God. No, I will not love my wife. Unless she... And the wife says, no, I will not, you know, love and honor my husband unless he... No, I will not call off the marriage because I'm in love. And I don't care if he, he doesn't love the Lord Jesus Christ, whom I love. I love Him and my feelings are paramount. So I will not call it off. How dare you suggest it? No. No, I'm busy. I don't have time to, to teach my children about God because I have too many things to do. No, I'm not taking that on. My schedule's full. Sorry. Someone else should do that. No, I won't apologize. No, I won't admit wrongdoing. I won't repent. I won't forgive. I will not submit to authority. I will not restrain my impulses, urges, and desires. I will not restrain my tongue. I will not believe that. I will believe what works for me and what fits into my puny little rationalism. I will not have compassion on the hurting person that God has put right in front of my face. It is my lifestyle. It is my body. It is my money, my, spot, my spirituality. And so, no, I will not, God. And most of all, I will not repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. This is the true liturgy of the human heart. This is the true sound of human worship toward our wonderful God. 
It's not that sometimes I get a stiff neck. It's that I am stiff-necked. It's not that sometimes I get up on the wrong side of the bed and feel a little rebellious. It's that I am a rebel. You know, I, I am. And somehow we still have the temerity to after all this, to having our whole lives defined around ourselves and our own, you know, beliefs and morality that we construct for ourselves out of like sandcastles, I still have the temerity to say, you know, I'm a pretty decent person. I don't see how God could ever be mad with me. You know, I, how could God, I just don't believe God can judge people. I mean, really, we're so wonderful. And look at the world we've, oh yeah. Um, you know, look, at, look how wonderful we are. I, I'm a wonderful person. I've never really hurt anybody that badly, at least not to my knowledge. I mean, I don't think God would be unhappy with me. And it's like we're just, we don't see that deep underneath is a no. And even when we say I'm going to, by my own definition, be righteous, that's a kind of no toward God. Because we're saying no to His law and to His righteousness. I was uh, thinking about the fact that someday God will come back and there will be a day of judgment And on that day, our own pretensions of righteousness will just evaporate before Him. And I I was meditating the other day on, on, it was a Friday when it was 50 degrees, and I was meditating. It was just, I felt really meditative. It was wonderful. And I was driving along watching the snow melt along the sides of the roads. And you know, it's interesting, when the snow melts on the sides of the roads like this, it gets grittier and dirtier and filthier. It's like, how did that happen? Did someone go along and, and sprinkle that stuff on them? When did that happen? Well, it was in there. It was in the snow. The snow plows put it there, right? And then there was a fresh coat of snow on it. But then as the snow melts and, and the, you know, the pure, clean snow melts, the dirt and the filth and the grit just becomes you know, more and more manifested. And I was thinking, you know, there's going to be a day when we stand before God and... We won't be judging each other you know, in terms of I'm better than him or she's better than me, but we'll all stand before the bar of God's holiness and His burning holiness will come and will melt all of our phony baloney morality. And then that true no underneath will be revealed for who we really are. So what are we supposed to do with this? Is there any hope? Is this just... You know, all terror and wrath and judgment. We need help. We, we need God to do something. If, if it's not by our righteousness, because we aren't righteous, we are stiff-necked, then, then where's hope? <laughs> is this just a, a message of doom and gloom? Is that what we have here? No, there is hope. The hope is in God Himself, who is merciful and gracious. God who provides a way out and a righteousness. It's right here in the text. Look at Deuteronomy 9. Verse 18. Why didn't God destroy Israel then at Mount Sinai when He said, let's wipe them out and start over? There's one reason. Because Israel had a mediator named Moses. Look at verse 18. Then once again I fell prostrate before the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. Again in God's presence I ate no bread, drank no water because of all the sin you had committed. Doing what was evil in the Lord's sight. And so provoking Him to anger. I feared the anger and wrath of the Lord, for He was angry enough with you to destroy you. But again, the Lord listened to me. God heard the mediator. And the Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him. But at that time, I prayed for Aaron too. 
And I took that sinful thing of yours, the calf you made, burned it in the fire. Then I crushed it and ground it to powder as fine as dust and threw it into the stream that flowed down the mountain. Israel was not destroyed because Moses sort of jumped in between Israel and God and said, no, God, have mercy, have mercy. Same thing at Horeb, at uh, Kadesh Barnea, when they were about to enter the promised land. Look down to verse 28. I lay prostrate before the Lord those 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had said He would destroy you. I prayed to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, do not destroy your people, your own inheritance that you redeemed by your great power and brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Overlook the stubbornness of this people, their wickedness and their sin. Otherwise, the country from which you brought us will say, because the Lord was not able to take them into the land He promised them, and because He hated them, He brought them out to put them to death in the desert. But they are your people, your inheritance, that you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. God, have mercy for your own name's sake. And then we see the response of God in chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. At that time, the Lord said to me, chisel out two stone tablets. God said, we'll give grace. And so we see the role of the mediator pleading for the people who do not deserve mercy and grace. And God in His grace answers. You know, we're here this morning worshiping God. We're here as a church because God has provided a mediator. Because God has provided a go-between, an intercessor to stand for us. The reason we can even be here and sing God's praises and be His people and enjoy all the benefits of salvation and blessing is because God has provided a second Moses God has provided the Lord Jesus Christ who is the fulfillment of all those promises through all the Old Testament led up to Christ. He is the Messiah, the awaited one, the anointed one, the holy one who's come. Or think about it this way. Jesus is the divine yes that overrules all of our no's. Because in Christ, God said, yes, I will save a people. Before time began, before the world was created, you know, we talked about predestination earlier, but, you know, the, God the Father and God the Son, together with God the Holy Spirit, three in one, you know, the Father and the Son agreed. They said, yes, we will save a people. The Father said, you will save them by dying for them, and the Son said, I will. Yes. And so God made a, a, a promise, not based on our righteousness, not based on anything He could foresee in us. There's nothing to foresee. It was God saying yes to salvation. And so, down through the ages, that promise was strengthened and clarified until finally Jesus came. As it says in 2 Corinthians, as many are the promises of God, they are yes in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only person who's ever walked the face of the earth whose whole life was a wonderful yes to God. He always said yes to God. Whatever God wanted, whatever the Father wanted, the Son said yes. He was the obedient Son. Even when the Father finally said, go to the cross, the Son said, not my will, yours be done. Translation, yes, I'll go. I'll go to the cross. And then on the cross, as God's judgment against sin, which we read about here, it was poured out on the Son instead of on us. He took that place for us. The yes canceled out our no by receiving the consequences of our no. Think about it that way. And then He was buried. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, bodily, physically, 
truly raised. And in being raised from the dead, it was as if God was saying from heaven, yes, you have saved them. Yes, you are my son. You didn't die as just some other martyr or criminal. You are truly the son of God. And so by his resurrection, he was vindicated. And he went to be at the Father's right hand where he is today. And then at just the right time, for us, that would be like 2,000 years later-ish, we heard the gospel. Someone told us all that story. Someone told us that good news. That there was a God who provided a way for us to be forgiven and reconciled to Him. And we heard about Christ, and some of us heard it once, some of us heard it five times, some of us heard it a hundred times. But on one of the times we heard it, God did a miracle in our hearts. God took and put a word in our heart that wasn't there before. He put the word, yes, into our hearts. He changed us. He made us born again so that that second time or 50th time or 100th time we heard the Gospel, the Holy Spirit gave us a yes. And we suddenly found ourselves saying, yes, I will repent. I will trust in Christ. And we were born again. And we entered into the new covenant that Jesus made. But instead of coming and giving us two stone tablets, putting them on the wall and saying, okay, you've got to do those cabinets, keep those tablets or you're out. Instead, He put His law in our hearts. The Holy Spirit came into us and we were born again. And so we said yes to God, but it's because He had first said yes to us. You know, do do we have to choose Jesus and and make a decision to believe in Him? Yes. But we can only do that because He's made a decision for us in the first place. So it's His grace. And then even as a Christian, sometimes, you know, I, I go back to the old no lifestyle to God. In fact, more often than I'd like to admit. I go back to saying no to God. And and sometimes Christians say no to God so much. Real Christians. I mean, not just nominal Christians, but real born-again Christians say no to God so much that it even starts to look like maybe they aren't Christians in the first place. But here's the good news. Jesus knows who His sheep are. And and, and He's standing at the Father's right hand like Moses, interceding. And He's saying, Father, I, I know they're not acting like one of mine, but I'm telling you, yes, that's mine. Yes. And God will bring them back. He always does. He's faithful. And then someday, we're going to see Him again. Christ is coming back. And on that day when the whole world is saying no, 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 not a no of resistance, but a no of terror and dread, we will be saying, yes! At long last! This is the moment my soul has been yearning for all those years. At last, yes. We'll be so happy, we'll leap out of our graves. We'll be raised. And finally, you know, I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. And so we'll be with the Lord and the great wedding feast of yes will begin. The great dance of yes forever and ever with our Savior will begin. So my friends, Abandon as quickly as you can the ridiculous idea that you are righteous enough. Take it off like a coat that's on fire. Just strip it down. And embrace a righteousness that comes from heaven as a gift. A free gift from God. And maybe you say, well, I don't know if I should do that because what if I'm not one of the chosen ones? Wrong question. Here's the right question. The right question to ask God isn't am I chosen. The right question to ask God is, God, would you be able to have mercy on me? 
And I can tell you, God only has one answer to that question. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. Thank you for saying yes to us. Even when we were saying no to you, you said yes to us. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us faith. Thank you for the gift of faith. Thank you for showing us who you are. God, I thank you that you've somehow providentially brought us to this room right now. We're not here by accident, but we're here because you brought us here, Lord. And I just pray that you would put in the soul of every person a fresh yes. For some of us, Lord, we have wandered away. And we need to come back and say yes. Some of us have never said yes to you. Not really. Not on your terms. So Lord, we lay down all pretension of self-righteousness. We acknowledge our guilt. We acknowledge that we are liable to judgment. And we say, Jesus, have mercy on me. I love you and I want to follow you. So Lord, help us. I pray that you would make this church a joyful, hopeful, happy group of people. But not happy in a worldly sense. Happy in knowing that that You are our God and that You have saved us and that our salvation from beginning to end and all the way through is of Your power, not ours. Lord, we love You and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.